from deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, it uh, appears that there's a, uh, a big debate inside NPR. Now, I'm, I'm not privy to this kind of information normally, because I, I, despite what people may think that uh, all public radio shows come from NPR, this one and many others don't. But the Washington Post uh, reports that uh, there's a lively debate within NPR over the last two weeks. Journalists, journalists at the uh, Washington-based network have addressed such issues as to whether it is all right to describe an unpleasant or unscrupulous person using the word that describes the posterior... Well, a wor- using a word that rhymes with glass bowl, the posterior orifice. Uh, using that on an NPR broadcast or on one of its podcasts. It seems neither. It uh, generated... There was, there was a, a column on the NPA, NPR ethics page uh, just defining and describing the policy, which brought uh, a, um, a staff memo, memo back from Nina Totenberg, the uh, NPR, longtime NPR, Supreme Court reporter. The uh, NPR Standards and Practices editor laid down the basic rules. Avoid using vulgar, profane, or obscene language on the air or in podcasts. Now, the the reason this comes up is uh, because podcasts are not uh, regulated by the FCC, as is broadcasting. So some podcasters thought, hey, sky's the limit, dude. Totenberg uh, argued for keeping some more reality in the news. But, you know, it's just storytelling. I don't know what the problem is. We're just storytellers. Uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, I am in London, and uh, I'm missing something about America already. You know, it's, a, it's a perfectly warm, sunny day here in London. I'm not w- missing the weather right now. And uh, I'm not even missing Donald Trump, really. Well, kind of. But what I'm really missing is the, uh, the most hallowed institution in American television these days. And I'm not talking about reality shows or even sports guys yelling at each other. I'm talking about the side effects warning. Here's my favorite that I just saw and heard this week. Like all blood thinners, don't stop taking Xarelto without talking to your doctor, as this may increase your risk of a blood clot or stroke. While taking Xarelto, it may take longer for bleeding to stop. Xarelto may increase your risk of bleeding if you take certain medicines. Xarelto can cause serious bleeding and in rare cases may be fatal. Get help right away if you develop unexpected bleeding. Do not take Xarelto if you have an artificial heart valve or abnormal bleeding. Before starting Xarelto, tell your doctor about any conditions such as kidney, liver, or bleeding problems. Ask your doctor about Xarelto. Ask him about the bleeding. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of bleeding involved. And uh, sure enough, the very next night, on the same channel, in the same time slot of the program, it was Jeopardy, uh, there was a, a commercial from a law firm. Have you or a loved one suffered ex- excessive bleeding or death from taking Xarelto? So it's a system, see? It's a, it, all the pieces work together. Watch out for the bleeding, though. Now, the host of The Daily Show, John's, uh, the outgoing host, well, he's, 
he's sort of introverted, but he's he's leaving the show. Let's put it that way. John Stewart was revealed this week, this very week, by Politico magazine to have had two meetings, two different meetings with President Obama. Meetings which had been previously undisclosed. This resulted in a bit of a, a foo-foo, particularly on, uh, on, on Fox News, which is, of course, one of Jon Stewart's favorite targets. Fish in a barrel, you might say, but still, he's got, you know, 30 minutes to fill every night. So uh, after a couple of days of uh, this, Jon Stewart came up with his uh, own response, starting with a cleverly edited sequence of reports about his meetings. With Obama. Politico is reporting that Stewart secretly visited the White House. The president invited Stewart to two secret White House meetings when he needed media support. Secretly meeting with President Obama at secret meetings. Had secret meetings. Secretly working together for years. Holy <laughs> that, that, I have to say this. That sounds so much more awesome than what happened. <laughs> Basically, the president of the United States called my office and asked twice if I would come to Washington and and meet with him. And I did. (laughs) The whole secret thing makes it sound sinister. Uh, But if you guys insist, uh, it was a secret. John Stewart was invited into the Oval Office not once but twice. Secret meetings, were they? Well, uh, not necessarily secret because it's it's on the log. They're just kind of coming out now, Stuart, so it depends on, on how you look at it. Right. <laughs> so I guess if you look at it, then it's not a secret. <laughs> like if you look at it, that it was openly listed, and I went through the normal White House entrance like everybody else, and I told my mom what I was doing, and then she told her friends, and then her friends were like... <laughs> Still not a cardiologist, but the point is this. Something is not a secret just because you don't know about it. I assume that the insinuation here is I was summoned to the White House so Obama and I could coordinate on his agenda, maybe promoting Obamacare or the auto bailout or something like that. What's your evidence? Last year, the president chatted up Stewart hours before warning Russia against further military intervention in Ukraine. And Stewart who seemingly worked in concert with the White House, said this on his very next show. Russian forces storming Ukrainian bases. That is blatant naked aggression, or at the very least, disturbingly shirtless aggression. Yeah. (laughs) The next Daily Show, there was Jon Stewart making fun of Vladimir Putin. And so it worked from the White House's point of view. Interesting. Interesting. (laughs) So you believe as Russian troops gathered at the border of the Ukraine, Obama summoned me. Just in case he needed help turning young Americans against Putin. Was the president of the United States trying to influence or intimidate or flatter me? My guess is, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Did it work? Might have. Was it sinister? Oh, no. Something's not a secret just because you don't know it. That could have been said by the head of the NSA. Uh... The part that I couldn't play was uh, he described the content of much of the conversations that he had with uh, President Obama as similar to the conversations he'd had with a lot of 
high-ranking, powerful people over the years. And the, the uh, thrust of that was, John, why are you such a, well, I'm on public radio, John, why are you such a glass bowl? If, uh, if he could get five amusing minutes out of it now, and it wasn't a secret, why did he wait until Politico revealed it to share the news with his audience? Just asking. Hello, welcome to the show.
from London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Thank you, Joe Biden. That, no, that's Joe Biden's uh, campaign song. If he runs, I would think. Um, how's, how's the uh, whole thing against Islamic State doing? You might want to know at this point in time. It's about a year since uh, the United States announced that we were taking on Islamic State with uh, bombing. We wouldn't need boots on the ground, you remember? Now, the Associated Press reports, American intelligence agencies have concluded that despite the billions of dollars spent and more than 10,000 extremist fighters killed, the Islamic State group is fundamentally no weaker than it was a year ago. U.S. military commanders on the ground aren't disputing the assessment, but they point to an upcoming effort to clear the important important Sunni city of Ramadi, which fell to the militants in May. Watch Ramadi. The battle for Ramadi, expected over the next few months, promises to test the metal of Iraq's security forces, according to the Marine general who's helping to run the effort over there. I'm, I'm guessing it's not heavy metal. He, the general says, we've put the uh, IS on the defensive. He says there's progress. But U.S. intelligence agencies see the overall situation as a strategic stalemate. The Islamic State remains a well-funded extremist army able to replenish its ranks with foreign jihadis as quickly as the U.S. can eliminate them. It's a system. Meanwhile, the group has expanded to other countries, much like Uber. The assessments, the assessments by the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and others appear to contradict the optimistic line taken by the Obama administration's special envoy, hey, it's got to be working if it's got a special envoy. Otherwise, it would just have an ordinary envoy. You know that. It's retired General John Allen, who told a forum in Aspen, you know, that's the Aspen Institute, he said, ISIS is losing in Iraq and Syria. Intelligence contradicting that was described by officials who would not be named because <laughs> with the legs. We've seen no meaningful degradation in their numbers, said a defense official, say, uh, said a defense official citing intelligence estimates that put the the group's total strength at between 20 and 30,000, same as last August. Well, they haven't reproduced, or or they're just having one kid. The Islamic State's staying power raises questions about the administration's approach to the threat. The administration campaign of bombing and training, which prohibits American troops from accompanying fighters into combat, or directing airstrikes from the ground, could take a decade or more to drive the Islamic State from its safe haven. That's what analysts say. So, one year in, and uh, stalemate. Which is better than a fresh mate, I guess. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Oh, boy. Produced by Jim Ebersole, Jr. Well, it's made mainstream media, finally. What we've been telling you for about the past year or more about the state of the water 
where swimming and boating activities are going to be taking place during the Olympic Games in Rio. Athletes in next year's Summer Olympics will be swimming and boating in waters so contaminated with human feces they risk becoming violently ill and unable to compete in the Games. That's according to the Associated Press investigation. An AP analysis of water quality revealed dangerously high levels of viruses and bacteria from human, raw, uh, from human sewage in Olympic and Paralympic venues. The Paralympic Paralympians uh, completed some test heats, pardon the expression, in the water just this weekend. These are results that alarmed international experts. They are so hard to alarm and dismayed competitors training in Rio, some of whom have already fallen ill with fevers, vomiting, and diarrhea. Rio Olympics organizers face pollution challenges, says the president of the IOC. This is the first independent comprehensive testing for both viruses and bacteria at the Olympic sites. Brazilian officials have insisted the water will be safe. But extreme water pollution is common in Brazil, where the majority of sewage is not treated. And yet it's not sick. You see what I said there? Raw waste runs through open-air ditches to streams and rivers that feed the Olympic water sites. As a result, Olympic athletes are almost certain to come into contact with disease-causing viruses that in some tests measured up to 1.7 million times the levels of what would be considered hazardous on a Southern California beach. So there, despite decades of official pledges to clean up the mess, the stench of raw sewage still greets travelers touching down at Rio's airport, says the AP. Prime beaches are deserted because the surf is thick with putrid sludge. It's my favorite punk band. And periodic die-offs leave the Olympic lake littered with rotting fish. What you have there is basically raw sewage, says a marine biologist with the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project. He examined the AP tests. It's all from the water, from the toilets and the showers and whatever people put down their sinks all mixed up, and it's going out into the beach waters, he said. Those kinds of things would be shut down immediately if found in the U.S. The World Health Organization has asked the IOC to run new tests on the waterways after the AP's story. Until now, water evaluations have only included testing for bacteria. The WHO wants testing for viruses, too. Because it's the Olympics. Also, Tokyo's Olympics logo appears to have been Designed bearing a striking similarity to another logo. Designed by Kenjiro Sano, the 2020 Olympics logo features a rectangular pillar with two triangles on its top and bottom. So does Studio Debi's emblem for the Belgian Théâtre de Liège. There are differences. Studio Debi's founder strongly suggested in a tweet that Kenjiro Sano, the Japanese designer, ripped off his design. Sano in a statement issued by the Tokyo Organizing Committee said, I have no particular comment to make. You also know that Boston's bid to host the 2024 Olympics was undercut by its own mayor, its skeptical public, and finally leaders of the U.S. Olympic Committee who retired the city's ever-changing blueprint. Approval ratings that couldn't get out of the 40s were the first sign of trouble for Boston. It became clear the bid was doomed in the 72-hour period before the U.S. OC board met with leaders Monday, and they jointly decided to pull the plug. It's an Olympic plug.
Friday, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker stuck to his previous position. He would, well, that's last Friday. Uh, he wouldn't throw his weight behind the bid until he got a full report from a consulting group. Boston's mayor on Monday announced he wouldn't be pressured into signing the host city contract and essentially would stick the city and state with the burden of any cost overruns. No governor, no mayor, so no bid. Boston 24, 24 has expressed confidence that with more time they could generate the public support necessary to win the bid and deliver a great games. They also recognize, said a spokesman, that we were out of time. Unquote. The chairs of no Boston Olympics celebrated Monday night at a Boston pub. And finally, from the Times of London, owned by Rupert Murdoch, but still, Secret data revealing the extraordinary extent of cheating by athletes at the world's most prestigious events can be disclosed for the first time today after the biggest leak of blood test data in sporting history. The Sunday Times and a German broadcaster have been given access to a database consisting of more than 12,000 blood tests from 5,000 athletes, including household names from across the world. The blood doping data reveals that a third of medals including 55 golds, have been won in endurance events at the Olympics and World Championships by athletes who have recorded suspicious tests, yet the authorities have failed to take away any of the medals. The data shows that athletes, or sorry, track and field, is in these, quote, same diabolical state as cycling in the era of Lance Armstrong, according to world experts who describe the findings as, quote, a shameful betrayal of clean track and field. Several British athletes have lost out in major events to competitors who are under suspicion. Many athletes are risking death or disability by recklessly using transfusions or banned red cell boosting drugs which make their blood so thick they should be seeking hospital treatment rather than competing. The data in the files have been kept under lock and key for years at the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF Monaco headquarters, but was released by a whistleblower who was seriously concerned about its disturbing contents. The disclosures raise serious questions about whether results can be trusted the World Athletics Championships will be held in Beijing in three weeks' time. And also, about competition at the Olympics. Screw the statistics. The Olympics is a movement, and we need one. Every day. Just one apology of the week this week, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't that that sorry a week, apparently. But uh, it's one I think you've already heard. But it's 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 a fun apology, nonetheless. Doctor Palmer, the Minnesota-based dentist, who's become the scourge of the internet after killing Zimbabwe's beloved Cecil the lion during his uh, fifty-five thousand dollar. Hunting trip. Yeah, they hunted him, Cecil, 
by uh, dragging the body of a dead animal in front of the entrance to the national park where he was protected, luring him out, and then shooting him with a bow and arrow, injuring him, and then waiting, well, hunting him down and, and shooting him. Dr. Palmer, Dr. Walter Palmer reiterates he had no idea that particular lion was Cecil. Cecil? I didn't know he was Cecil. He did not knowingly participate in any illegal hunting activities. To my valued patients, it was an apology to his patients, because he's a dentist. Now he apologizes, not for the pain and the thing. As you may have already heard, I've been in the news over the last few days for reasons that have nothing to do with my profession or the care I provide for you. I want you to know of this situation and my involvement. I've been a lifelong hunter since I was a child growing up in North Dakota and killing South Dakotans. No, he didn't say that. I don't often talk about hunting with my patients because it can be a divisive and emotionally charged topic. And it might scare you. He didn't say that. I understand and respect that not everyone shares the same views on hunting. In early July, I was in Zimbabwe on a bow hunting trip for big game. My professional guide secured all proper permits. Everything about this trip was legal and properly handled and conducted. I had no idea that the lion I took, 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 was a known local favorite, was collared and part of a study until the end of the hunt. I relied on the expertise of my local professional guides, and I'm now throwing them under the bus. No. I have not been contacted by authorities in Zimbabwe or the U.S. about this situation, but will assist them in any inquiries they may have. Again, I deeply regret that my pursuit of an activity I love resulted in the taking of this lion. That was never my intention. For that disruption, I apologize profoundly for this inconvenience and promise you that we will do our best to resume normal operations as soon as possible. Zimbabwean U.S. officials have tried to contact him. That's the end of his apology. I've tried to contact him. He has been unreachable. But if he's reachable, if he ever becomes reachable again, he will cooperate. That is the apology of the week. And it is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's follow the dollar. Well, you know, we hear so much about whether um, we should be subsidizing clean energy. The president is coming out with a clean energy uh, program tomorrow, Monday. And uh, Mitch McConnell has called previous attempts to regulate, uh, try to get uh, clean energy going. A war on coal. The Economist reports governments are still splurging on subsidies for oil production. Fossil fuels are reaping support of $550 billion annually, according to the International Energy Agency, the organization that represents oil and gas consuming countries. That's more than four times the subsidies given for renewable energy around the world. The IMF estimates are substantially higher. It said in May that countries will spend $5.3 trillion subsidizing oil, gas, and coal in 2015 versus $2 trillion in 2011. That's 6.5% of global GDP, more than what governments around the world spend on health care. Governments have devised several different ways of giving handouts for fossil fuels, reports The Economist. Rich countries, among them, the IMF says America is the world's second biggest subsidizer of petroleum production, spending $669 billion this year to subsidize oil production. 
mostly by post-tax systems which fail to factor the costs of environmental damage into prices. The International Energy Agency believes that only 8% of the subsidies accrue to the poorest fifth of the world population. A lot of those subsidies are in countries keeping oil prices low so uh, poor people don't complain about gas prices and overthrow the government. Environmentalists argue that supporting fossil fuels represses the development of clean energy, promotes air pollution, and climate change. IMF statisticians reckon that if the subsidies were cut, global carbon dioxide emissions would fall by over 20%, and government revenues would increase by $2.9 trillion, or 3.6% of GDP. Don't tell Grover Norquist. Follow the dollar, ladies and gentlemen. An uncopyrighted feature of this broadcast. Great nations of Europe They gathered on the shore They conquered what was behind them Now they wanted more So they looked to the mighty ocean And took to the western sea The great nations of Europe In the 16th century Hide your wives and daughters Hide the groceries too Great nations of Europe Coming through Canary Islands, first land to which they came. They slaughtered all the canaries there, which gave the land its name. There were natives there called watches, watches by the score. But it's the seas of Portuguese, they weren't there anymore. Now they're gone, they're gone, they're really gone. You never seen anyone so gone. They're pictured in museums. Some lines written in a book But you won't find a live one No matter where you look Hide your wives and daughters Hide the groceries too Great nations of Europe coming through Columbus sailed for India Found Salvador instead He shook hands with some Indians Soon they all were dead They got TV and typhoid and athletes foot to and the flu Excuse me, great nations Cutting through Balboa found the Pacific And on the trail one day He met some friendly Indians Whom he was told were gay So he had them torn apart by dogs On religious grounds they say Great nations of young With white holes Sure.
From London, this is the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend, the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Save, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, save, too safe to meet. Save, save, too safe to meet. Eddie, the Adam. Yes, sir. Guilty as charged. You're, you're wearing uh, sunscreen? It doesn't work. It just slips off. Okay. Be careful. Dateline Tokyo, a t- Japanese judicial committee, has decided that three former utility executives of TEPCO should face criminal charges and stand trial for their alleged negligence in the Fukushima nuclear disaster. What? They let the bankers go. A document released Friday showed the committee of independent citizens... Well, there's your problem right there. ...voted in favor of indicting the three vice presidents of TEPCO. The 11-member committee's second decision supporting the indictment overrides Tokyo prosecutors' two earlier decisions to drop the case, forcing the three men to be charged with professional negligence. It will be the first criminal case involving the utilities officials from the nuclear disaster to be tried in court. The prosecutors had cited lack of evidence to prove they could foresee that the officials could foresee the danger of a tsunami and decided not to file charges most recently in January of this year. The committee alleged the three men neglected to take sufficient measures even though they were fully aware of the risk of a major tsunami at the plant at least two years before the accident. It said they should be charged with professional negligence. At least it was professional. Resulting in the death and injury during the accident and its aftermath, including the deaths of dozens of senior citizens in a hospital during and after the lengthy evacuation. The decision also blamed three executives for the injury suffered by 13 defense officials and TEPCO employees during emergency operations at the plant. Uh, lawyers will now be hired. It's good for the legal business. It is. And that's everybody's business. Dateline, Carlsbad, California. Uh, no, it's Carlsbad, New Mexico. There are too many Carlsbads, don't you think? Not enough. Officials of the federal government's troubled nuclear waste repository in southern New Mexico, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. What part of that name is still true? Waste. Uh, say the target date for reopening is being pushed back. It's been closed, the WIPP, since a February release, a year ago February, of radiation, release of radiation, that is, that stemmed from a chemical reaction among waste improperly packed inside a drum. Shouldn't they have drummers at the waste? No, not that kind of drum. The target date for resuming waste emplacement operations was March next year. Officials said this week that date is, quote, no longer viable due to a variety of unanticipated issues, unquote. That's the thing about surprises. You never expect them. Isn't that tr- the truth? Uh, Exelon's, excuse me, Exelon's Quad Cities, uh, Illinois nuclear plant is being closed down. The CEO of the Chicago-based utility giant Exelon, which also is the largest nuclear plant operator in the country, made it clear in a conference call with financial analysts this week he doesn't see a way to keep money-losing Quad Cities open. In the absence of a state law to charge ratepayers throughout the state of Illinois more to bolster revenues at the nuclear plants. Well, everybody else is getting subsidies. Exelon says three of its six Illinois plants are losing money as wholesale power prices remain historically low due in large part to the low cost of natural gas. Gas. Blame the frackers. Yep. People who are caught up in a nuclear disaster are more likely to suffer 
severe psychological disorders such as depression and post-traumatic stress disorder rather than any harm from radiation. Scientists said on Friday, factors such as having to evacuate homes or simply fear contribute to the trauma. The scientists said in studies published in The Lancet, the British Medical Association journal. The studies counter the misconception, according to the report, that nuclear disasters have caused widespread death and physical illness. The researchers found the mental health effects were far more profound, said these scientists. Nuclear, ac- nuclear, ac- nuclear accidents are rare, but five rated as severe have occurred during the past 60 years. This is from the Fukushima Medical University, saying the psychological burden for people living in affected areas is often overlooked. It's the fear. It's the fear. What? Oh, sorry. You scared me sitting there. And a new government report gives poor marks to Los Alamos National Laboratory on its state of nuclear safety, saying the lab continues to have problems, quote, fully implementing a number of critical nuclear safety management requirements, unquote. Until the lab does better, there is only limited assurance that safety risks associated with nuclear facility operations are effectively mitigated for the safety of workers, the public, and the environment, says a safety audit by the Department of Energy's Office of Inspector General. Just spreading fear. Clean, safe, safe. Too scary to meter, our friend, the Adam. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news of pack. We learned this week, somewhat belatedly, that Mullah Omar, head of the Taliban, died like two years ago. And this belated admission exposed rifts in the Taliban and underlined Pakistan's role as a haven for extremist militants from South and Central Asia. The new head of the Taliban, Mullah Akhtar Mansur, issued a recorded message calling for unity among the Taliban. He was Mullah Omar's deputy, like Mullah Omar, who lived and died in Pakistan after the U.S. chased him out of Afghanistan. He's assumed to be living in Pakistan. But Omar's son and brother protested and walked out of the meeting that chose Mullah Mansar as the new Taliban chief, according to Reuters. That suggests hardline Taliban supporters opposed the peace talks in Pakistan recently begun by the Taliban leadership. Omar's been dead for more than two years. A stream of bogus jihadist declarations were issued in his name, according to the Afghan government. And the startling news has been confirmed as credible by the White House. Well, that would solve that. Afghan and Western officials maintained that the subterfuge that Mullah Omar was alive could only have been organized by the Pakistani Secret Service, the ISI, according to the British newspaper, The Indy. He had not been seen publicly since... uh, the Taliban regime was overthrown in 2001. The Pakistani government's official position was that Mullah Omar was never in Pakistan. But the Pakistani military now admitted he had died in a Karachi hospital. China and Pakistan are working in tandem to foster peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban, according to Asia Times. But the Taliban has made the end of American military occupation the main precondition for peace in Afghanistan. Pakistan recently claimed Pakistan and China are willing to be the guarantors of any Afghan settlement. China looms large as a potentially much bigger benefactor for Afghanistan. If peace gets established, it would help create a climate for launching the multi-billion dollar Silk Road projects. China's already pledged $46 billion 
Pakistan for an economic corridor. This could bring China, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, and Russia on a single platform on issues of regional security and stability, says Asia Times. But U.S. General Martin Dempsey visited Afghan President Ghani a week or two ago, discussing making Afghanistan the regional hub of U.S. anti-terror efforts over there. He says the level of resources to fight IS and other terrorists must be sustainable over 10 years. I don't want to do this one year at a time, said General Dempsey. It's a generational fight, said General Dempsey. Ghani believes, President Ghani, the new president of Afghanistan, believes Afghanistan could be an exporter of stability in this type of program, said General Dempsey. Afghanistan, an exporter of stability. At times, USA Today says Ghani has been accused by political opponents of exaggerating the IS threat in his country in an effort to maintain U.S. support. But officials of the U.S.-led coalition say IS has made some inroads in Afghanistan. The Islamic State presence in Afghanistan is largely formed from Taliban groups that rebranded themselves as Islamic State fighters to attract support. Everybody's rebranding these days, except for Donald Trump. He's staying the same brand. Anyway, that's how it looks from here. How does it look from over there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, where our ethics policy bans both swearing and bleeps, from the abundant American broadcasting truck in downtown Kabul, soon to serve as the command center of the new regional defense hub, I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Brick and Brack, the Never Broke Brothers. <laughs> and here we go with another edition of Cars I Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Friends of the Islamic State making the world safe for danger. <laughs> <laughs> so, my younger brother, mm. we may be losing this wonderful truck if President Ghani is serious about being the new defense hub of the region. You mean just because this happens to be the best-equipped communications facility in the entire country? <laughs> <laughs> also because it's the only thing the Americans left behind that has GPS. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Unless our American friends have already succeeded in putting a GPS chip in my distinguished successor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he'll always know where he is. So they'll always know where he is. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Hello. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Uh, hello, I'm Martin, long-time Joint Chief of Staff Chairman, first-time caller. Martin, welcome. Thank you me. are a retiring Army General, aren't you? Well, uh, my colleagues think I'm pretty darn uh, gregarious, but... I, I think what uh, my brother wanted to ask you, but he's too retiring, <laughs> to, to just come out and uh, ask it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, now that you are leaving the service, do you happen to know of anywhere he might uh, get hold of some spare Humvee parts? <laughs> <laughs> it's for a friend. <laughs> of course. Uh, guys, I have to tell you, I'm, uh, I'm going out of the service exactly the way I came in. Poor as a mosque mouse? No, sir. Mm. Yelling at my subordinates. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, Hamid, I had a, a good little chat with your successor a couple of weeks ago about your your country becoming sort of our 
our HQ in that whole region. Yes, sir. Uh, that would be key to your plan of fighting the IS and the Taliban and all the rest for the uh, next ten years? A uh, uh, generational struggle is what I call it. Hmm. That makes it sound like an argument between Mahmoud and our dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, General, uh-huh. this takes me back to the old days uh-huh. when... Uh, when he used to call the palace his home instead of now when he calls his home the palace. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but do you have a question for us? Uh, or a pledge. Either is good. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, no pledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing personal, but uh, I don't happen to be a fan of a Hindu Kush companion. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do have a question... Uh, I mean, uh, let's just say that uh, our friend, your successor, mm-hmm. is uh, more interested in forging uh, new ties with, uh, let's say, the Chinese and, uh, let's say, the Pakistanis than he is in uh, having U.S. forces engaged with him in, uh, let's say, a generational battle. But uh, you're just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, would you be in, in any way interested, uh, Hamid, in, in mm. making yourself available for uh, a groundswell of grassroots support Keeping in mind, this is a country where we don't have grass, let alone roots. <laughs> General, I value my role as an historical figure. Mm, he was the first public radio host to have his own tote bag. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to do anything to tarnish my role. In the long run, nothing is more important to me. Than being the Afghan Tony Blair. <laughs> Then we can talk. Thanks for the call. Oh, poor Kazakhstan. They couldn't even get the Winter Olympics. Oh, please. The best we can do is be in the finals to host the athletic competition for young porn stars. Really? What competition is that? The Triple X Games. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Hello, you're on cars I talk. Hello, I'm Mullah Omar's younger brother. First time caller. Oh, hello, caller. What do we call you? Uh, Jim Omar. Mullah Jim, welcome. Is it true that your older sibling died two years ago? Yes, it's a tragic story. No. Uh, he, he was in Pakistan uh, for some time. Mm. Uh, everybody knows, of course, how good Indian food is. Indian restaurants are everywhere. Oh, yes, I could go for a lovely curry myself right now. If I know you, you could even go for a nasty curry right now. <laughs> I know that's not true. But, but, but there's a reason you don't see a lot of uh, Pakistani restaurants anywhere besides Pakistan. The surly waiters? <laughs> uh, and then he was in the hospital. You mean Pakistani, Pakistani hospital, hospital food. food. <laughs> <laughs> so why did he take this long to find out about his passing? Uh, we were solemnly pledged to keep it an absolute secret until the moment when uh, John Stewart revealed his meetings with President Obama. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mullah Jim Omar, why did you not decide to take over the leadership of the Taliban when your brother died? Mm. I was always ready to assume the awesome responsibilities of my brother were he to have had one of those accidents that you can never completely plan for. <laughs> like when you wired the bomb to my accelerator but forgot the batteries? <laughs> <laughs> Sue me. They ran out of triple A's. <laughs> well, as you know, uh, some of the fighters like being controlled by Pakistan. Some don't. Oh, yes. Uh, some of them want to engage in uh, peace talks with the central government. Uh, some don't. Right. Uh, some of them would swear their lives to protect uh, whoever succeeded my brother. 
And, and some, some won't. won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the way things are going, Mola Jim, uh -huh. the worst that could happen to you is that you go into exile with your new protectors. You mean... Yes, Chinese, Chinese food. food. <laughs> 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 Thanks for the call. We had help today from the War Foundation. War... It's what we're fighting for. Legal services for Karstai Talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Mahmoud. I'm Hamid. Join us next time for a pledge drive shortened edition of Karzai Talk. Very shortened. <laughs> <laughs> this is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. I've just found joy. I'm as happy as a baby boy. With another brand new choo-choo toy When I'm with my sweet Lorraine Pair of eyes that are bluer than the summer skies When you see them you'll realize Why I love my sweet Lorraine When it's raining I won't miss the sun Cause it's in my baby's smile And to think that I'm the lucky one Who will lead her down the aisle Each night I pray That somebody won't steal her heart away I can't wait until that lucky day When I marry sweet Lorraine When it's raining, I won't miss the sun Cause it's in my baby's smile And to think that I'm the lucky one Who will lead her down the aisle Each night I pray that somebody won't steal her heart away I can't bet until that lucky day When I marry sweet Lorraine Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Independent also reports, uh, speaking of the uh, the belated word about the death of uh, Mullah Omar, a commander of some Taliban fighters in uh, Helmand province, says the morale of the men is very, very low. If he died two years ago, 
Who were we fighting for? Why were we fighting? Unquote. Welcome to the club, babe. And now, news of the warm. The world's forests are taking longer than expected to recover from increasingly frequent droughts, meaning their ability to store climate-changing carbon dioxide is smaller than previously thought, according to Utah University researchers reporting this week. If forests are absorbing less carbon dioxide, then the effects of climate change will be worse than past models had predicted, said the study published in the journal Science. What do they know? It's science. This really matters because in the future, droughts are expected to increase in frequency and severity due to climate change, said the study's lead author. Some forests could be in a race to recover before the next drought strikes. Trees take an average of two to four years after the end of a drought to return to normal growth rates and store greater amounts of CO2. But trees grew 9% more slowly than than expected during the first year of post-drought recovery and 5% slower in the second year. Multiplied across the world's forests, considering the increasing frequency of droughts, these seemingly small figures have a major impact on how much carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere. So grow uh, faster recovering trees, won't you? Won't you please? Uh, New research confirms that the land under the Chesapeake Bay is sinking rapidly, projecting that Washington, D.C. could drop by six or more inches in the next century, adding to the problems of sea level rise, depending on how you define problem. This falling land will exacerbate the flooding that the nation's capital faces from rising ocean waters due to the warming climate and melting ice sheets, accelerating the threat to the nation's Sorry, to the region's monuments, roads, wildlife refuges, and politicians. All these all these guys who've been saying we're gonna we're gonna teach Washington. Washington's gonna get taught a lesson. For sixty years, tide gauges have shown the sea level in the Chesapeake Bay is rising at twice the global average rate and faster than elsewhere on the East Coast. Geologists have hypothesized for several decades that land in that area pushed up by the weight of a prehistoric ice sheet to the north has been settling back down since the ice melted. This is called a four-bulge collapse, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome. News of the warm, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, things despite the entrance of a male synchronized swimmer into the world of synchronized swimming. It's about time, don't you think? Judges were forced to wear rain jackets and hold umbrellas, and an underwater loudspeaker broke during Russia's gold medal winning routine as bad weather and technical problems disrupted the World Synchronized Swimming Championships. 
Heavy rain leaked through the temporary roof into the arena. Russia's, one of Russia's swimmers were left in shock after the underwater speaker broke. We could only hear some crackling and not the music, she said. Said a Canadian team member, you could call it a little comical, unquote. That concludes this week's Farago of Human Frailties and Foibles called Le Show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S.N. 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ planet. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin around the world via the Internet at two different locations live and archive whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from wwno.org, iTunes, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, and tunein.com. And it'd be just like synchronized swimmers getting rained on all the time because they're wet anyway. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much, uh huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans, and to Adrian Bodenham here at Global Radio in London. This crazy, crazy thing called Global for help with today's broadcast. And uh, the email address for this broadcast, playlist of the music heard here on. HarryShearer.com and Cars I Talk t-shirts. Don't forget those. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions. It originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. <laughs>